Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss, coming to you from Los Angeles, California, as usual. Thank you so much for listening. I recently introduced a new sponsor for the podcast, Catavino Tours. One of the main reasons I decided to partner with Catavino Tours was because of their founder, Ryan Opaz. His wine journey has led him to become a thoughtful wine business owner with deep ecological consciousness gained from decades of working at nearly every level in the wine industry. Besides being the founder and CEO of Catavino with his wife and partner, Gabriela, he runs a natural and organic wine shop in Porto, Portugal, co-authored and was the photographer of the James Beard Award-nominated book, Foot Trodden, Portugal and the Wines That Time Forgot. Previously, he was also the photographer for the book, The Amber Revolution, and a book about Porto's Balau market. For his service to the Portuguese wine industry, he has also been inducted as a knight of the Port Wine Brotherhood. Yes, this is a conversation with not only a knight, but a wine knight. One of the admirable qualities of Ryan that comes up in this interview is his desire to remind all of us in wine that answers to questions and solutions to problems aren't universally applicable and timeless. That is, the issues we face are complex, context-dependent, and we would be wise to resist the impulse to simplify questions to single answers or problems to single solutions. And even when we think we've found a way forward, we should continue to research and explore and be willing to find that we need to change our approach again next year. We also talk a lot about emissions offsets. If you've been paying attention to the news about carbon offsets from John Oliver to The Guardian, you'll know that there are a lot of problems with offsets. In fact, there are more than problems. There is a massive amount of deception and outright fraud. Ryan brings up some really interesting ideas about offsets that I think are important to consider, and his efforts to make his wine tourism company less wasteful and more ecologically positive have brought up some really good questions that I think we will all be wrestling with over the next decade or so. And I'm currently in discussion with a reputable company who does offsets to do a future episode entirely devoted to this hard question and the many nuances around these issues. So stay tuned. The most important thing may not be that we seek ways to offset every ounce of carbon from our lives but that we begin to see that all of our choices and actions have ecological consequences, that there is a cost to everything we do. And if we aren't paying for it, it's likely that the earth or someone or something else is. Full disclosure, Ryan's company is a sponsor for the Organic Wine Podcast. And you can support this podcast by visiting catavinotours.com OWP for Organic Wine Podcast and booking a tour with Ryan. I'm really glad to have Ryan as a sponsor, and I think this interview will help you see why. Enjoy. Ryan, welcome. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate you coming on to have this conversation. I'm super excited. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's uh, it's going to be fun. I would love you to just introduce yourself a bit and talk about where you are and why you're there and how you got there and what you do, because I think you have, a, you have a, an interesting story. Well, we want to keep this under four hours, so I'll try to keep it brief. <laughs> right. Um, Highlights, yeah. Yeah. I've been slinging boxes since 1998, <laughs> I think. Um, I got out of college and got a little job in a wine shop so I could learn a few things. So I've been in the industry for a few years. Um, during that time, I've done everything from running wine shops to consulting wineries on social media to running a, a large communications conference throughout Europe. Um, done retail, I've made wine, I've 
sold wine. Um, so for since 2000, end of 2004, my wife and I have lived in Europe. Uh, it was in 2004, we moved to Madrid, which was both probably the smartest and dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, we had no language, no job, no money, uh, no place to live at first. And we bought two tickets and jumped on a plane and moved to Madrid with the idea that those things didn't matter. <laughs> um, I've been there. I've been there. I, I know exactly what you mean. That, so, yeah. Yes, the, yeah. Bright-eyed, that was, detailed American that was... naivete. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thought everyone would want my help, and I found <laughs> I found that I needed everybody else's help, and uh, which was humbling and and good learning. But I wanted to live in Europe before I was thirty, and I moved there three months before I turned thirty. So I accomplished that, and then we promised we'd. I forget we had so little money in our bank account. It was it was embarrassingly small amount of money, and we said, "Well, we'll give up when we get so little money. We can't, we." Had, can buy a plane to get home. And I remember looking at our bank account at some point and realizing we didn't have enough money to buy a plane to get home. And I, was like, <laughs> I guess we're staying. <laughs> so we, um, yeah, we we lived in Madrid for a couple of years and we moved up near Barcelona. And during that time, I, I had a consulting business helping. We built the first wine blog for a winery in Europe back in 2005, back when bloggers were called blaggers by Robert Parker and people basically poo-pooed us as something that was irrelevant, kind of like we do with influencers today. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, oh, that's a good yeah. idea. We were the first bloggers in the circle of wine writers, and um, it was pretty prestigious in the UK. But yeah, we did that for a long time. And in 2013, uh, my wife had just gotten pregnant with our first, our only son. And um, before he was born, we moved to Porto in Portugal, which uh, always felt a bit more like home to us. We have uh, some long historical roots to Portugal, and we moved to Porto where we had a lot of friends from, we had built up from the wine industry and, and others, and uh, haven't looked back. It's It's been an absolute pleasure being here, and um, now we're Portuguese citizens, and we run a small natural wine shop, organic wine shop, uh, run a luxury wine tourism business, and don't do as much consulting. I've written a book, a couple books. Um, yeah. Wrote, wrote Two other a, things. Wrote a book about Portugal, foot trodden. Um, yep. For anybody who wants a great book about Portugal, um, Portu <laughs> Portuguese wine, uh, definitely worth checking out. And beautiful because you are also a photographer, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So I've done three books, photos. Of, we did a book about a, a market here called Buyal Market. Um, and then I did some, I'm sure some of your listeners know the book uh, Amber Revolution. Um, mm. which is all about orange wine. Right. Uh, my my co-author for Foot Trot, and I did the photos for his book, Amber Revolution, and then we co-wrote, and I did the photos for Foot Trot, and which was something we, we we ended up doing because we were right. We were working on Amber Revolution and drinking a lot of Portuguese wine as we traveled together. <laughs> and uh, we realized that there were no books about Portuguese wine, which was really interesting because there's a lot of like textbooks about Portuguese wine. But um we didn't have a book that actually told stories about Portugal in a way that we wanted to understand Portugal. So I like to say it's a book about Portugal through the lens of wine. And um, Portugal itself is basically a place where wine is the lifeblood of so much that happens here. Um, it's, you can't go anywhere in Portugal without seeing a vine, mm. simply. Um, 
and so yeah, that book was was a lot of fun to do. Um, we've had a lot of interesting and, and good feedback from it, and it it focuses a lot on a lot on your topic, which not so much organic, but the idea of sustainability and and uh, how yeah. we might have moved away from that, um, and now how we're starting to return. Yeah, I think I mean just in talking with you, you've kind of conveyed this idea of the isolation of Portugal has made it a really interesting window through which to to see you know the green revolution as it applies to wine and I, I mean I think you've said something about knowing specifically when the first chemical pesticide you know where it was used who used it when it was used in Portugal yeah. can you talk a little bit about that yes yeah, so I mean that. well I mean we we love Portugal on so many levels and there's so many wines here that are like people don't even realize some of the best sparkling wines in my opinion in Europe are made here even my friends in Champagne often mock me and say, please don't serve these to people, Ryan, they're too good. Um, <laughs> Portugal's like this mystery to so many people because for so long it was just port wine mm. and port wine is a British construct. In fact, the Portuguese don't really drink port wine. <laughs> it's not a right. cultural beverage here. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, when we were writing the book, we were looking for stories and trying to find people who um, were doing things or could tell stories about the, the, the truth behind Portugal's wines and not what happened in the 90s, which was a point at which um, essentially after we entered the EU, um, due to some very complex laws around port wine trade, uh, a lot of people took to trying to commercialize table wines to the exterior markets. And um, the Portuguese basically had to take and prove themselves. And so people went out and they started to try to make wines in a style that would score points and get recognition. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that these wines were often wines that borrowed the narrative of other regions just so they could show that it could be done. In other words, show that we can make great wine, but they, they ignored or, or turned a blind eye to some of the quote unquote rustic or, or less sophisticated traditions of making wine here. And, um, and so to your point about the, the first chemicals, <clears throat> we, um, when looking at the book, and you probably run into this yourself, you have people today even who are like, oh, organic wine has a special flavor or unique taste, or it's mm. uh, it's different. <laughs> and uh, what we thought was funny is we hear this a lot. And then we found this guy down in Bajada, which is a region just south of Porto, who is the father of a good friend of ours, a winemaker. And um, we were talking to him, and it turns out this is the guy who had the first shipment, basically, of some of the more toxic and virulent strains of pesticides um, and brought them in. And that was in 1950, probably going to get it wrong, around 56 or something. So anything yeah. prior to 56, and I'm not going to say was 100% organic because there was things like DDT and things, but um, there was not, Portugal was so poor, there wasn't the huge amount of industrial fertilizers, definitely not the pesticides because they didn't exist yet. And so... These produce, what we found funny is we'd sit with people who talk about the strangeness of organic wines and then talk about the greatness of the great 45 port and the 29 port and stuff. And we're like, you know, those were organic, right? Right. <laughs> those, those are made in very traditional, non-interventionist ways. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I so much, I mean, it's, it's such a good... Um, microcosm i just think of the wine world in general to hear these kind of timelines because i i just 
so much of what is just unquestioned about what is considered to be you know the standard wine world what is the revered wine the what is called classic you know or classical wine is actually you know just a few years old just a few decades old you know <laughs> like we made it up yeah, ex- uh, in the last exactly. few decades and and to think and the classic if we really want to talk classic it's it it's natural wine <laughs> it's organically grown wine like that's what's funny about this idea of like oh you know whatever whatever it is like the you know it really is such a short brief window of time that that these things have been normalized and and now they're considered classic i mean it's yeah it's like well that 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 was i mean the first time i had this realization was working on the ember evolution book which you know basically we have to remember wine historically and for pretty much 99 percent of its existence was a calorie preservation device Full stop. A farmer grew calories and had to make sure those calories lasted so that his family stayed alive. So you could dry those grapes and that lasts a little bit, or you could ferment them and it lasts a bit longer. You could turn that to vinegar, which is very nutritious. And and until very recently, and even today, people are reviving the tradition of drinking vinegars and things called shrubs. But you could distill it too and then have a very concentrated form of those calories. But because of that, we know for a fact that you know, why would you ever take skins away from white wine if your goal is to preserve it? Because that's where the antioxidants and the preservatives are that are naturally in the grape. So when Simon was working on the book and finished it, you know, it was like this idea that white wine is white without skin contact is like a drop in the historical timeline of wine. It's it's an anomaly. Yeah, and completely dependent on technology, you know, uh, like, uh, like, what I want to call, um, you know, greenhouse gas emitting technology, essentially like <laughs> technology that requires power and, you know, power derived from burning fossil fuels to operate, uh, you know, outside inputs, like a, an infrastructure of an electrical system, grid and that kind of stuff, or, you know, something like that. I mean, you couldn't make what is considered the norm for white wine now a hundred years ago. You know, it was impossible. Yeah, I mean, or, or near. All the, I don't know. It might have been a little. But even all the clarification bit. and stuff. I mean, obviously we had the egg whites and things, but today there's there's so many things to clarify and to and to to, to stabilize the temperature and and everything else. Right. And and I, I I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, there are great white wines. <laughs> I'm not I'm not against <laughs> some of no, these things. No, but no, it's per- but it is funny that yeah. Those people have their nose in the air saying we're the we're the real thing. And it's like you you just showed up in the last, you know, it's like that timeline of the universe. And, you know, like the human segment is like a human hair's width at the very end. Right. And that's the entire existence of humans. That's somewhat like white wine is to wine, because ever since it was first you know, accidentally fermented on the vine or wherever, or in a sack of somebody carrying grapes. It was with its skins. It was tannic. It had all of those different characters. I'm not saying that was delicious, and I'm not saying that maybe that was something I want to drink today, but uh, wine's been around a lot longer than we think. Yeah. And uh, and some of these modern ideas from oak flavor uh, to, to white wine itself is basically, you know, we have a few decades worth of playtime with it yeah and i mean to your point as well i mean there's so many things that 
<laughs> I want to just immediately jump into, but you know, you mean you brought up how port isn't even something that's drunk by the Portuguese that, you know, and, and this is really a reflection in, in the, you know, and I, and I love the term the new world because it just shows how Eurocentric what is considered normal wine culture really is like how just tied to looking out from the shores of, of the European continent it is, but how in the new world, really all of the new world wine culture is exported by the English. You know, it is literally like an English take on European wine culture that they couldn't participate in because their climate sucked until recently for growing grapes. And so they fetishized it and, and, you know, codified it and created this whole, you know, court of master sommeliers, wine and spirits education trust to educate everyone else in the world about what they really loved about European wine and exported it. And that's what we think is wine. I mean, that's what we have been taught is wine. And, and it's, it's really just an English colonial export, you know, like, and, and it's, I mean, port Portugal is this very clear example of that, you know, where it's like the, the companies aren't even owned by the Portuguese in most cases, right? They're, they're old English companies because the English Navy controlled the world and they used these ports to get the supplies they needed, which in this case was wine. And they fortified it so that it could make the trip up the, up the coast to, uh, to the home Island without spoiling. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that's a very, I'm going to get you on a tour with me so we can go deeper. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I, I know. Because, I'm, I'm oversimplifying, I, but you know, it's the, but you're, yeah. I don't know principle. who is listening to this, you know what I mean? But I, I feel like I will, I, I hope that I catch somebody at some point in their life that hasn't heard this before, hasn't, this hasn't considered this because it, it really is an eye-opening thing when you start to think about it, when you, you know, and then going back to what you're saying about really what wine was, was this calorie preservation thing. And when you think of it that way, then, you know, you just, if you start applying that to where you live in the world, if you were a farmer living in your world right now, what would you care about Cabernet Sauvignon? You know what I mean? You'd be looking around, you know, your your farm there in Ohio and you wouldn't find Cabernet Sauvignon. You know what I mean? Well, uh, but to your finding... point. Yeah, sorry. To your point, that's the, no, no, but I mean, you're making a point that I know is important to both of us, which is this idea that was began in the 70s of commercializing grapes and not wines. Um, right is something that in Portugal I see is such a sad thing to have happened now. And to be fair, there's maybe one or two regions where there's a grape that's so distinct and so unique that it's worth talking about. And Baga is one of them. It's a, it's a red grape from the region of Bajada and it has a very unique and specific cultural history, but it comes from a region with this huge diversity of grapes. And the one thing in, in Portugal, one of our whole chapters is about this is the field blends. You know, field blends were, again, calorie preservation devices. So a field blend is an intermixed planting of many different grapes. Here in Portugal, I know vineyards with up to 70 different grapes planted in one hectare, which is about two and a half acres, more or less. And, um, you know, those pl- they were planted like that so that we knew during the ripening season, at least something in that group would ripen either early or late, depending on when the weather fell each year. Um, and so you come here now and... When the Portuguese, and I won't say the Portuguese, I'll say the wine world, learn to start marketing their wines internationally and beyond their own four walls, they they said, oh, wait, we have to talk about a grape? Okay, well, let's find some grapes to talk about. 
and let's make a wine from those grapes. And it's just, it's become kind of depressing because now you have, you know, these single varietal grapes, wines all over Portugal, which had this incredible rich tapestry of field blends. And even when right. in the Douro back in the late 70s, 80s, more or less, João Nicolau Almeida took and um, started doing research to find out which port wine grapes of the many 120 approved varieties made the best port wines. He came up with five red grapes that he takes and he <clears throat> he recommended to the um, to the IVDP, which is a regulating body, as, as grapes that would be good. And so people started block planting these grapes. And that led to wines being made from these five grapes. And um, yet we're still talking about the greatest wines coming from the first half of the 20th century when this knowledge didn't exist and all those wines were made with field blend. Um, right. We're missing something. I think, I, it, I just, you know, everybody I'm sure on this podcast knows the one straw revolution. And um, <laughs> I would assume. Um, <laughs> but the, the book, the second book, the book by the, the, the translator, um, the one straw revolutionary, it was so interesting reading it. I wish I had it here so I could get the quote. But in the beginning of the book, it talks about, you know, looking at a place at its individual parts and not as the place as itself. You know, mm. the whole place is made up of all of these things. It is the individual. It'd be like saying, oh, Ryan, nice knees. That defines you. You know, like knees are part of me. Yeah, nice. Eyes. I guess, but you have your you have a full body. You have a full thing. And we yes. look at, you know, deconstructing a vineyard down to it, the grape or the trellising system or whatever, or the farming. It's like, it's, it's, it's the whole thing, the whole entity and everything there's dependent upon every part of it, including, you know, the native flora and fauna that, that surrounds it or is within it. Um, that reductionist idea of going down to, oh, well, this one thing or that one thing, um, it kind of drives me crazy. You know, visiting wineries sometimes makes me go nuts because people, they talk about one little detail, but not how that detail reacts or interacts or influences the rest of the full picture. Yeah. I, I mean, once you get that ecological, I, I call it an ecological mindset or perspective, it's, it really just, it changes everything. It really does, and it's you can't unsee it, and you can't see how disjointed everything else is. And I, I, I think it was um, Aldo Leopold that said something like, "The you know, the ecologist has the curse of seeing like dying by a million cuts that nobody else sees, or something like that, or like being aware of like a million illnesses in their surrounding land that nobody else is aware of." Um, wow. But but it's I'm and that's a terrible paraphrase but it's something like that. Um, <laughs> but it's it is that idea of like i mean once you see i mean what, what's interesting again is so much of what is taken for normal now is is very recent as we you know this is like a theme now but in farming in general like this idea of monoculture this idea of of buying a land for its fertility and then clearing it of the plants that were already thriving there so that you can put something that is not native to there, that is maybe not even native to anywhere near there and growing that intensively until that fertility is gone is, is just insane. I mean, 
and and in wine it's still a norm like good well-meaning organically farming people this is still a norm people are clearing forests to plant organic vineyards you know and it's like are you insane like well like but that's a, that's one fine. of the that's one of the things we talked about i think at some point where the i listened to the episode with isabella Giron and um I've known her for a long time, but she brought up an interesting point about the natural wine movement and, and clear glass and how for her natural wines evolved the idea of it. And I, I kind of feel mm. like I have a similar journey to hers in some ways, but this idea that natural wine now is coveting this clear glass bottle, which can't be recycled in the same way that other right. glass bottle. Hey, I'm just jumping in to let you know about another incredible sponsor of the Organic Wine Podcast. They're called Oom, and they have solved a huge problem for the wine industry. That problem is the massive carbon footprint of using glass bottles. Oom collects used wine bottles, removes their labels, and cleans and sanitizes them so that they can be reused. At the same cost that you would pay for new bottles, you can now buy clean, reused bottles from Oom and therefore also reduce your carbon footprint and reduced waste significantly. This is an industry-changing paradigm, and it's something you can share with your customers. It's a really big deal, both for wine and for the earth. And the earth is why Oom is doing what they're doing. So check out Oom at oom.earth, and enter the referral code OWP for Organic Wine Podcast in their contact form so that they know you heard it here. That's oom.earth, O-O-M.earth, and use referral code O-W-P, and your bottle purchase will benefit the Organic Wine Podcast and the Earth. And so when we talk about wine, this is, I guess, my biggest pet peeve is that we we want to talk about a wine, a place, a thing. Uh, we talk about sustainability in wine. <clears throat> We're willing to talk about the fact that we should use lighter glass, but not that maybe we should fly less. and um, or, you know, we're willing to talk about organic vineyard, um, but we, to your point, you know, we're trying to get rid of things that grow there <laughs> voraciously um, <laughs> to to maintain the, the story that we hope to tell. So, oh, we have an organically farmed vineyard that we fight against the blackberries from taking over. Well, that <laughs> right. doesn't, it doesn't really ring true. I understand you would prefer to grow grapes. Great. And I'm not saying grapes can't come into a landscape and live symbiotically with it. Uh, I'm not a farmer and I'm definitely not an expert on these topics, but why aren't we asking the questions that aren't comfortable to ask? I just, because this is kind of how, why we're talking, I, a year ago, tried to get rid of a plastic bottle in my tourism company. I was sick mm -hmm. of giving my guests plastic bottles. Yeah. And that has taken me on the longest road I ever thought I would be on just trying to get rid of a plastic bottle. Yes, yeah, everyone's I, I love so, this story. Please. <laughs> well everybody tells me, well it's such a small thing. Don't worry about it. You know, just recycle it. So I'm like, great. So I go look. Well plastic, it turns out, isn't very recyclable. And in fact, there's very little plastic that's easily recyclable. And a lot of it just isn't recycled, even though it goes into a recycling bin. And yeah. we can discuss that. I'm not an expert on this, but from everything I've read, it's hard. So I decide I'm going to take and I'm going to make a solution. I'm going to give all my guests a reusable bottle and then we'll get bottle, we'll get a, a filtered water that they can fill their water, their bottles up with. And I go and I tell my parents, I call them up. I say, Hey mom, dad, um, I'm so excited. We figured out how to get rid of the plastic bottle. And my mom goes, Oh, that's great. You know, the other day we were down in the basement and we threw out, you know, like 50 or 60 of those. I said, what? 
He said, oh, you know, the, the reusable plastic bottles, we get them every time we do something, you know, people give them away. And I'm like, so now we're just making <laughs> plastic bottles that last a little bit longer and a little bit heavier and have a little bit more plastic involved. Right. So I'm right. like, so now what do I do? And at that point, I say to myself, well, you know, 20 years ago, I don't remember being, you know, at death's door if I didn't have water within, you know, a meter distance from me at any moment. But today it seems as though that's the world we live in, that we have to have water close enough to us at any moment, or otherwise we're going to evaporate and disappear. And um, and so, yeah, we looked through every kind of recyclable bottle, every type of plastic bottle. We're still struggling with it. We've, we found some recyclable containers now that uh, pet, uh, uh, Tetra Pak, which is a little bit better than plastic, it turns out, in some cases. Um, and we're going to try to use that if we can figure that's, it out. That's sort of like a but, box, right? Yeah, they're the yeah. things that um, you find juice and right, it's a right. cardboard Milk reinforced box. Yeah. And it, it turns out some of those are have more post-consumer waste and have a higher possibility of recycling, depending on, and this is the important thing, if I say this to you, you might live in who knows where, and there it's either to recycle something else. You know, we need to ask locally. There isn't an answer that's going to apply to everybody necessarily, at least not all at the same time. So I, I bring up this story only to go back to this thing about wine and, you know, talking about one piece of wine, one element of wine. Um, the plastic bottle question is so annoying. It's so frustrating. It's a problem for me personally just from that not to mention airlines and flying which my guests have to do if they want to come visit me how do i make sure that those flights are offset in a responsible way um is there such thing as a responsible offset i think i found some that are um there's plenty that aren't but um i have to take and make a choice to see if i can try a few things see how they go and and then hopefully um if that works well, um, I have to keep asking the question. I can't just stop. I can't just go, well, found a solution. Um, yeah. Next year, I have to ask the same question again and not be afraid to find a different answer. And yeah. I think that's the same thing for farming. That's the same thing for sales. It's the same thing for all the sustainable questions we have right now. There isn't an answer, I think, today that's not going to be a little bit different tomorrow. You know, it's. I love your thought that it's, why aren't we asking these difficult questions? And I, I I've, I think I've come to learn that those, when we find that, when we find these questions that like whole segments of, of things that we participate in are turning a blind eye to something, that there's like a huge opportunity there. And, and I think that's part of what's interesting about the plastic bottle journey that you went on, because it is, I mean, man, that is still as much as a much, as much awareness has been brought to the plastic bottle, it is just like ubiquitous to the point in planes now you you know you just the disposability uh, anyway planes are just a huge everything so <laughs> talk about that separately yeah, planes have so many different layers of bad um <laughs> and i mean i wish we could take a, a cruise liners are supposed to be worse than planes so i you know I, yeah well really oh yeah if you're in a cruise ship yeah i mean the waste yeah I, for sure the, I, I mean I was, it's it's <laughs> look at we have to if we want to stay sane we have to make uh, we have to make some trade-offs, but we also have to try to do the best we can. I know a couple episodes back, you were talking with somebody and, and uh, you, you said, you know, there's a lot of questionable things about uh, carbon offsets and if they work and if they're yeah. um, legit. And the truth I is, think, there's I think that was plenty Isabel of knowledge. Well. Uh, yeah. 
But there's some, I, I mean, I've, I've spent now six months, including talking to a guy who is a friend of a friend who works with very big corporations to try to offset, who's anti-tourism. <laughs> and um, he, he, he kind of broke it down. He said, there are real offsets, but offsets for him. And this is where I'm not an expert. So please, anybody listening, this is secondhand knowledge and I'm doing the research as we speak and I'm learning more every day. So I probably will misstep a bit, but he said there are very good offsets. And some of these offsets, um, a lot of the best ones don't have anything to do with planting trees. They have to do with helping educate people because Mm -hmm. they found that if you can educate somebody who's doesn't know how to farm sustainably, you do a lot more good than actually going and doing the farming yourself because you're spreading the word and you're you're helping. And those things can be measured when they take place in isolated communities or in certain areas. So, you know, for me, looking at That's can really, I offset my the traveler's carbon footprint? I can offset affordably um, the footprint, at least with the sources I've found. Those sources are audited not only by the the sites that I and the the companies behind it, but by third parties. Um, And I'm gonna this year try our best. I don't think we can offset everything, but we're gonna try our best to offset as much as possible. And more importantly, and this is the part that everybody I talked to said, do not offset unless you are also gonna try to reduce. And Mm. that's both (laughs) brilliant, terrifying and um and i guess absolutely necessary is the easiest way to put it so yeah you know i'm not gonna go f- i'm gonna try to fly less this year i unfortunately have to fly some and um there's nothing i can do about that from the current perspective i have but uh, i will offset those things using sources that i believe are um are better than others um and I'm also going to try to cut back. And I'm saying this as somebody who has a luxury travel company with people flying to Portugal all the time. Um, yeah. I want, I, want my, I want the people to come who come and visit us to understand that it's okay to travel, but we really should travel better. We should travel much more with much more intent almost. Um, I just got done writing a little piece that I may or may not publish, but the crux of it was... Um, when I was a kid, I grew up backpacking in the boundary waters of, of northern Minnesota. And my dad, he took me there since I was five years old. And he always taught me uh, saying that I think you could attribute to the Boy Scouts, but maybe not, which is leave no trace. And that yeah. means when you go to a place, you pack in what you, you pack out what you pack in and you try to clean up other people's messes if they don't do it themselves so that you leave the better place. Yeah, we And I... We had one, I'm sorry to interject, it was uh, take only photographs, leave only footprints. Exactly. So, And what I thought, I said this to my staff today because we were working on a project for a a greeting card and we needed a nice little saying. I said, leave no trace. And I said, why doesn't anybody ever apply that to tourism? Mm -hmm. I mean, when I come to a city, if I demand my cultural comforts, my my creature comforts that come from my own place, and I reinforce that. Let's say it's having a triple whatever macchiato at Starbucks. I'm leaving. I'm leaving my cultural stain on the city by supporting something that is kind of like leaving a bit of detritus on the path in a place that it wasn't meant to be. Whereas I could take the same money and maybe discover a new type of coffee at the cafe run by the guy across the street, and um, 
maybe learn a little something about where I am. And I thought, why don't we start applying Leave No Trace to tourism, to wine tourism, to, to all this travel that we do? And it may be a bit more metaphorical, but you know, how do we take and go to a place and walk away from it without, <laughs> without staining it in some ways with those, those cultural assumptions, I guess? Yeah, it's funny that there are a lot of parallels in, in just in, in, in treating people better as well uh, in terms of what, what we pay for, what we, you know, what we assume is normal, like not drinking cheap wine, I think brought that up, where it's like, you know, maybe buy a $35 bottle of wine and only do that once in a while versus, you know, five seven dollar bottles or ten dollar bottles or fifteen dollar bottles or whatever it is um i mean i I can only speak from what i know as a winemaker here in california but yeah if i know how the grapes are being farmed and what is being paid for a ton of grapes when when it's a five dollar bottle or a ten dollar bottle or a fifteen dollar bottle and it's basically you know forcing somebody to work really long hours for minimum wage in extreme heat and you know weather and everything else like that's that is where that cheapness comes from it comes from you know somebody at the bottom getting the shaft essentially (laughs) um (laughs) and you know probably exporting uh production of packaging to china and importing you know cheap cheaply made glass bottles from china um it's another way that that's done and yeah and none of this is a good thing you know period (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like I, I'm sorry, like you know, but it's, but know that, it's that's but, stepping on a lot of toes. But that's like, <laughs> you know, it's that's it's just not good. Like it's not, but it's such a holistic it's not the view. world I want to live in. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, that's my problem. Is if you if you're going to travel, even if you're going to travel a lot, you're going to travel a lot. Why why go why go someplace if it's just to take a picture of something everybody else has taken a picture of, um, you know, or drink. <laughs> You know, coming to Portugal, we have people that are like, oh, do you have a Chardonnay? I'm like, well, no, I, I don't. Um, oh, well, <laughs> like there's Chardonnay grown here, of course, and there's some nice Chardonnay, I'm sure. But I'm like, you're Portugal, you know, um, a different country. Um, we have different things and um, a lot of it tastes really good. <laughs> yeah. let's, let's go explore it together. And I, I mean, most of my most of the people who travel with me, that's not the problem at all. Um, you know, people do want to discover and stuff, but they also, you know, people come here. I have a couple coming in a, a week and they say, we want to learn which grapes in Portugal are worth drinking. And <laughs> I can't blame them. You know, they've, they've grown up in a place where they're told, figure out which grape you like and then buy that. And I'm like, you know, I remember selling wine. My biggest lesson when I was very green by in the year uh, and uh, selling wine in Minnesota I had a customer walk in and this, I remember it so well. I had no clue what I was doing, but I wanted to be a salesperson. So they asked if they, what these wines tasted like or something. I turned to him and I said, oh, uh, I had notes of blueberry. Oh, I hate blueberries and, and walked away. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, so I'm not going to give adjectives anymore. Um, and then, uh, you know, the next person comes up and they're like, well, I don't, I don't like Merlot. I said, oh, you've had them all? And um, they looked at me. <laughs> I was like, that's like a big category. <laughs> that's a very large category. Um, <laughs> so this couple that comes, the first thing they're going to hear from me because they're doing a tasting is we're going to sit down. I'm going to say, well, in Portugal, we talk about the blend. It's about the blend. 
and learning about the regions and, and learning about some of the styles that those regions have. And, um, you know, what does it mean to make a wine in a clay vessel in the Alentejo? The grapes, they tend to be field blends and those blends are put into the Latalia and it's punched down through fermentation and then aged for three months. And telling that story, I think is, is fun. My tours, I know I have people who think I'm insane when they're done with the tour because I don't talk about grapes. In fact, um, it's really funny because having had the book come out, I've had some very strange comments because we do have travelers who come because of the book. And uh, yeah. a couple of months ago, I had a guy with me for a couple of days in the Durham and he came up to me the first day and he goes, Ryan, um, you know, I read your book. I said, oh, that, that, great. Did you like it? I said, yeah, it's a very good book. Very weird book, but a very good book. <laughs> like, oh, why, why was it a weird book? He said, well, it was a wine book, but you, you didn't talk about wine. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> he says, you talked about people. And I mean, it was weird. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, well, who makes the wine? He goes, I know, but wine books don't talk about people. <laughs> it was like the biggest compliment I ever received because... You know, That's for great, me, yeah. I drink, I don't drink wine because of the grape. I don't drink it because of the color. I don't drink it for any of those reasons. I don't drink it because its brand name happens to show up on a top 10 list of something. I drink it and I'm lucky being in the industry that I am. I'm able to drink it because of the person behind it. You know, I really love picking up a bottle made by my friend Miguel, like I had last night and <clears throat> just sitting there and sipping on it. And, you know, it's a beautiful beautiful wine but it's made more beautiful because i have a nice relationship with miguel and i know his winery and i know he's trying to be more and more sustainable he just put in a bunch of beehives so that he could make honey so that he could work on a vermouth with me because that's one of my other <laughs> passions <laughs> so you know, and what that's it I, I can hear some arguments being like well it's really you know it's really hard to have that kind of intimacy with with the farmers with the wine production person but my response to that and i mean please you know give your own response but my response would be like well it's not if you're drinking locally you know it's not if exactly the, the wine that you're drinking comes from the farms that are around you from the land that's around you that you know reflects your local culture you know it's those and that's unfortunately not how people think of wine and so yeah. that's not how people drink wine yeah, that's uh, that's when I have so many different ways I can in my mind intellectually <laughs> go with that. Think about I mean, that for a minute. I was, gonna, <clears throat> I mean, to just to add to pile on, <laughs> I'm gonna be as you were talking about you know this idea of like people coming to Portugal and asking for Chardonnay, and and that of course is possible because of this global monoculture that now exists, where literally everywhere you go, you can just drink French wine. You know, like everywhere yeah. around the world, they don't make a local wine. They make a wine that is essentially a French wine made in a French style with French grapes. Literally every wine region in the world, that's true of. And I'm beginning to think that aside from the ecological impact that that has on our planet, like to have a global monoculture, the, the maybe bigger tragedy is we've created such a boring world <laughs> you know it's just like <laughs> we are missing out on so much interesting diversity that we yeah. could be experiencing yeah. by have by having this idea of like this is only this is what wine is it's just it's so boring like wine has become well, but, so freaking boring i mean now it's there's some changing change is happening which yeah. is exciting but 
Go ahead. Sorry. I just want to... Well, no, I, I, to your point, though, I mean, the wine industry, I, I, I wrote an article a few years ago called uh, On Wine and Tragedy, and it was about the consumers not needing to find better wine, but that the winemakers needed to find more consumers or better consumers. And I think this is the problem. The wineries and the wine press have taught consumers that there's such thing as a wrong wine, that you could get it wrong. You could accidentally buy a wine, get home and be like, oh crap, this is wrong. And then, I don't know, the house burns down or something. (laughs) But (laughs) we've gotten this idea that we need to identify a wine and understand it. We need to understand the wine. Uh, And to me, that is the greatest tragedy because it plays into what you're saying. Um, Wine should be, or not even wine, beverages should be about discovery, should be about having fun, should be about sharing moments. You know, uh, in Europe, you don't even think about the wine. You think about dinner and then you ask, where's the wine? Um, You know, you sit down to eat and somebody puts a, a jar with wine that probably came out of a box or a cellar and uh, you drink it with the meal because it's it's in Portugal it's taxed as food it's still taxed as food in fact Um, (laughs) and uh, and yeah I think people are afraid that when they don't understand something I'm I've told you I'm a I'm obsessed with vermouth for more than 20 some years I've been obsessed with vermouth mainly because of encountering Andrew Quaddy's via back in early 2000s and uh, I'm about to as of Friday I'll have my first personal vermouths bottled i've done a couple projects but vermouth often scares people because they don't know what it is they don't understand and um one of the top uh, authorities on vermouth always in, in a book uh, t- entitled vermouth actually he he explains that um he believes wine prior to maybe three four hundred years ago almost all wine was vermouth because you would add anything to it to your grape juice to make it more palatable that was yeah. you know, spruce boughs or fruit more, you with more longevity would, as well right exactly you'd be adding tannins and other things and and so now being this vermouth advocate and somebody who makes it and um i i believe and this is something you're going to have a good laugh at um i run up against a lot of winemakers who say vermouth isn't wine and i'm like you know the way I make vermouth, it's it's the highest expression of terroir, I believe, a vineyard could ever give you because I, I take the grapes from that vineyard and then I take the plants from that vineyard and I put them together and I try to paint a picture of that time and that place. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you get into this hom- homogeny of wine, you know, vermouth, at least today, sits outside of that, <laughs> that idea of Chardonnay or Cabernet or whatever. And people are like, well, I can't understand that because there's no grape. We've been told we have to know the grape. Um, doesn't say region because silly EU laws doesn't allow us to say the region necessarily. So I won't be able to understand that. Um, <laughs> but in- instead, you have this beautiful beverage, something I think is layered with so much nuance and so many interesting stories. And and um, and then people, it doesn't fit that, that nice little box that they want to have it in. Yeah. So they look away. Well, you also sort of, found me because of vines and trees maybe this can lead us to talk a little (laughs) bit about what's what's interesting what's going on there in portugal because i mean some of the stuff that you've talked about has made me super excited just to think about how wine i mean again it's 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 a place where the old traditions lasted until very recently (laughs) um and now since they only went through a short period of of you know being out of uh out of favor or out of popularity there it's 
they're being revived much more easily than in other places. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you know? We, might remind be me of the who's the person who was on here? It, well, there was there's been a couple now, but um, really. I was, yeah, well, I mean, I talked to, uh, I mean, I would definitely recommend Mark Shepard to anybody who haven't, because his, he's, he's in not Wisconsin. Just, he's in Wisconsin, yeah. Yeah, that's and, the one I was thinking of. Okay. And then I, uh, if you haven't listened to Max Pascal, that interview, he okay. did a huge online article called The Lost Forest Gardens of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and I, I think Portugal gets called out in that as well. But it's a it's a deeply researched thing about the sort of perennial polycultures that were the norm for uh, for all you know what what is conceivable is you know global agriculture prior to the modern age. But specifically in Europe is where he focused because that was you know that's his ancestry and he just wanted to go back and see you know some of these things that have been marginalized and repressed uh, to find out what you know what actually was going on prior to you know, the green revolution and modern agriculture. And mm-hmm. yeah, and so it's, uh, I mean, that article is definitely worth reading. It's online. It's just an online article that you can find. But cool. that interview is another one where we talk about vines and as well, because that was a <laughs> well, big part of, you know, that, that uh, I mean, there's so many, every every language, I'm sure Portuguese has a has a word for that. You know, it's like uh, Alberta in, in, and Promiscua and, you know, these other, words depending if you're in italy or france or hottie like hottie viticulture uh in hotel and i don't well, know how to pronounce so what that. we have here is is unique because um i mean portugal's this tiny little space that's basically just slightly bigger than the biggest lake in minnesota lake superior <laughs> just to give you perspective <laughs> yet we have um i don't know how many temperate zones there are in the world but that we have a lot of them um we yeah. have a huge diversity of landscape from mountains to plains to everything in between. And, um, and we have a lot of different, um, influences. The Atlantic is cold on our shores, So it, it really moderates the climate and the interior can be brutally hot. Um, but the place that is known for, and the reason I really jumped on the episode that I listened to, um, was, uh, in the North in Vino Verde, a region that's incredibly misunderstood by most people. Uh, the traditional farming there is incredibly um, intense because it's it's basically very granitic soil, so it's uh, very hard to work. And then everybody has very small plots of land. Um, those plots are sometimes only a hectare, sometimes less, sometimes a little more, but uh, very tiny plots of land because of the obviously it's hard to work the soil as well, but the traditional way, and you still find this there is let's, let's just draw a picture. We're going to take a square, a nice square piece of land. And your house is at one end of that. And you might have a couple little outhouses around it, but around that perimeter, you're going to have tall trees. And those trees sometimes will be for fruit, sometimes for wood. Sometimes they might just sturdy <laughs> because Vino Verde gets the most rain in all of Portugal. It's one of the rainiest, if not the rainiest wine region in the world. Probably somebody will point out another one that's more rainy, but it's in the top two or three. <laughs> and um, it's uh, it's in that square, you take and you plant all of your vegetables. You have a little bit maybe of corn in the north. If you're a little further south, you might have some grains. And you have your cabbages 
you might have, well, you're definitely going to have at least one pig every year. You're going to maybe have a cow or some goat sheep. And then those trees, you're going to have vines growing up them. And you have that for two reasons. Number one reason is because of the rain. It's so rainy. And when it does rain, you need the wind to blow through the vines to dry out the grapes to prevent mildew and other um, funguses and bacteria and et cetera, et cetera. As we know, grapes love to attract. And so by growing these vines up 20 meters, 30 meters, wow. <laughs> I mean, literally, they can go up a long ways. Wow. Um, you, yeah, it might be a little bit of an exaggeration, but I've seen vines where I was like really questioning how anybody in their right mind would let that happen. Um, <laughs> and and there's pictures. I have pictures, old pictures of these little girls on these spindly little ladders climbing up with big baskets, picking grapes during the harvest. And wow. it's just incredible to see. But in that little square plot there, you have a huge, intense amount of calories concentrated and being rotated throughout the year. And Throughout all of that, you're going to take your grapes, you're going to make a portion into wine, you're going to distill a little bit of that. If they're on apple trees or <clears throat> if they're timber that can be cut down eventually so that you can help build other things. But in, in the inside part of that that's protected, you're going to have all of the vegetables and animals you need to, um, to keep your family alive. Yeah, that's beautiful. And so it's, it's, it's really interesting as I was, we had a group here um, for a, a conference that is based around sustainable agriculture around the world. And they work with very poor African areas and um, where, where poverty is unfortunately um, very uh, intense and uh, they work to develop farming techniques and, and, and methods for helping people to make better use of their land and, and improve the, the quality of life. Anyways, <laughs> one of the guys who, is uh, I forget where he was exactly, but he had come and he was a speaker and I was with him on the bus. We were going up into Vidium Fire to a winery for dinner and he asked about this and I explained it all and he kicked me aside later and he goes, it's really interesting because we do this exact same thing, almost identical in, uh, in my neighborhood village. Um, we all have our square of land and we grow our trees and we plant some vine or something that can climb up those trees and, and then we put everything we need to protect in the middle. And he said, yeah. it's, a, it's a very common, logical way of farming. Yeah. yeah, it really is. I know you've talked about some other really cool things in Portugal that may be good to end on. But I just wanted to go back before that to the point that you made about education being a, uh, a form of, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, emissions. Uh, reduction or an offset and an, a carbon offset ah. education can actually might be the most important form of emissions offset that we could participate in and i think what's exciting about that is there's so many ways that 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 can be true i mean there's you can be you can, your life could be invested in that as an educator you know like i mean in a sense i hope that i am doing that with this podcast and and I know that this is just one way that somebody can educate and spread the word about ways for people to think differently about their world and and learn and and maybe even you know if uh, you know I hope it's not too much of a stretch you won't you won't think I'm trying to sell you too hard but like you know this is the value of travel this is the value of seeing other cultures is the educational aspect and learning to see your culture differently and realizing how different things could be 
and you know potentially causing you to go back to your home and make changes uh, once you've traveled to other places and seen how it's done and done well and done beautifully and with much less resources and in a much more holistic ecological way um, so you know as much as you know like you said we need to be thoughtful about travel there is this really lovely aspect of it that it teaches us you know to see outside our own reality yeah i think it helps what it does for me is it helps me find the questions that i'm not asking um as i said at the beginning and i, I keep trying to stress i i feel like somebody who's just beginning their journey and all this in many ways and discovering some books that um everybody <laughs> who's much deeper in um you know take as the standard texts of of the sustainable movement as it were but um what i find interesting the deeper i go into this is that i keep finding more questions um because i don't think we have i i think this was was very fun about like trying to be more sustainable or more eco-friendly or more responsible might be a better way to put it is it it's still a big big world out there and there's still a lot of right answers or even better put there's still a lot of answers that need to be tested and ideas that need to be tried and um, we still need to look at things uh, differently even when we think something's working right um, and I think travel I have tourists who come and they want to compare everything to their neighborhood. You know, oh, this reminds me of where I grew up. Oh, this reminds me of this. And you have tourists who come and they ask why. And um, sometimes I don't know the answers. In fact, that's one of the reasons I love doing tours is tourists sometimes help me find questions that I haven't asked because I'm a little too close to the subject matter. Um, I think what I like about your podcast is you've had some very differing I wouldn't say differing opinions, but you've had different ways of looking at this whole question of sustainability. And um, every time I listen to an episode, I'm I'm left with a question that I kind of want to go find a new book to grab, or I want to ask a friend if I understood the person you're talking to's opinion right, or if I misunderstood it because something didn't make sense to me. Um, I'm I don't I, I really I really am enjoying this um, this period of. Maybe it's good for me to fund people's educations, but likewise, that funding is in turn helping me to educate myself, as it were. Yeah, um, no, that's great. And uh, I mean, you know, I mean, just some of the stark realities that we live with have made me a little, I mean, uh, a, a little demoralized, I'll be honest. And um, I mean, things like, you know, we're talking, and while we're talking right now, the World Economic Forum is happening in Davos, where, you know, <laughs> literally a thousand private jets flew to switzerland from all over the globe and you know yeah. the just the carbon footprint for that little tiny conference alone is astronomical you know yeah um yeah. it's you know just those little things and I, i'm sure those same private jets fly all over the globe every day you know i'm sure yep. a thousand <laughs> private jet flights is probably a, a small amount of the number of private jets yep. flights that happen daily um and and in some ways it can feel very helpless, but that's um, you know I, I, you know especially when you think that we're talking from uh, from places of relative privilege and and uh, and wealth you know in a global sense uh, where mm -hmm. you know we we have we're not you know we're not in poverty we're not in uh, hunger and huge chunks of of 
the world are and their struggles are not with how to you know not use a plastic bottle you know it's like literally how to survive how to not be malnourished you know how to keep their kids safe and things like that and and so these questions that might keep me up at night about how many flights i take are really you know it's 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 a real it's a it's it's also very important to put it on a global scale and think about like what are the realities if what are the solutions that we need to provide for the rest of the world who wants to have to not be hungry to not be poor uh, to not live in you know bad situations um, that that come from squalor um, and 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 I think meeting those needs uh, and and. I think education is part of that. Like if we know, like I, you know, I, I don't know. I don't even know what I'm saying really, but there's, <laughs> there's this uh, tempering perspective that I've gained, which is, you know, I, I can do what I can do, but there's, um, you know, I need to think bigger. Like I need to think about, I guess what I'm trying to say, I mean, here's one thing I'm, I'm thinking about, which is like so much of the response to that, to like the global um, need for to to lift people out of poverty and hunger is about let's 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 burn more carbon or let's you know let's create more emissions <laughs> to do that and maybe the you know I, I look if if that's what's necessary that's what's going to happen but then the response is like well then we should build green technology so that they can have power and they can have infrastructure and they can you know yeah. with without the emissions you know like can we have our cake and eat it too and i'm not sure that that we've found that that's actually possible no. I, I mean I, this is that's what's <laughs> that's what's um scary about the whole situation is i mean to, to your point i always get this question when i start talking about this and as some people say get on my high horse about it i'm i'm not asking everybody to change their way i'm asking people to start asking questions and i, yeah. I realize that me you know having 10 less plastic bottles and uh and a couple less flights a year is you know not even a drop in the bucket of helping everything i want i want though the choices i make to be things that i feel comfortable living with and i don't feel comfortable living personally even if i am a a millionth of a millionth of a millionth of a fraction of the problem i i want to put a little bit of oh yeah and as I'm, much as i can towards that but i think going to be back clear to, i'm definitely not saying don't do that I'm not, no 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 i get that no, absolutely give up <laughs> i think i think you weren't i i don't think you were saying that i'm just saying that one i have to i have to put in perspective i realize that some of the stuff i do even my small tour company which isn't enormous even if i made it 100 percent carbon neutral it's I hope that that goes to that education thing and shows it can be done. And if enough of us were to do it, it might make a difference. My company might not make a huge difference, but I hope my difference is also getting people to ask those questions. The second thing, and going back to the the theme of this podcast, as it were, organic wine podcast, the wine industry, I think this is where I get most annoyed is I hear people justifying their indulgences, their trip yeah. to, you know, five wine regions in one year to go sip wine in the vineyards and stuff, or to have an expensive wine, you know, shipped in from, you know, bumble nowhere. Um, this yeah. to me is a problem because to what you said earlier, why aren't we proud to find and support the local wines? I, I brought this up once on a forum recently. I said, you know, why aren't we asking the question, being proud about how little we traveled and being proud about what we found locally to consume. And the joke was, oh, yeah, they can't make wine in, I forget, some northern state or country or whatever. You should taste the crap they make here. And I'm like, 
I collect obscure liqueurs for a hobby. Um, I love distillates from around the world. Anybody listening wants to send me a weird <clears throat> distillate. I <laughs> I absolutely adore um, tasting that essence of um, whatever the fruit or plant matter or uh, there's definitely other things that they're made from. But um, I I like discovering what's different. I also like people come into my wine shop and they say, well, you like wine. Why do you only have Portuguese wine? I'm like, well, I live in Portugal. And it's not that I don't want to drink, you know, French wine or something, but one, it's a little hard to get in Portugal. And two, I want to support the local wine culture here, which I think is another element of that. And something that the wine industry as a whole does everything in its power to promote just the opposite. We should be drinking wine every day of the week. We should have a wine from a different country. Why can't we have a little pride in the fact that this year I drink 90% of the wine I drink this year came from a hundred kilometers of where I am. And that living in Norway meant I drink a lot of cider. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't that be a point of pride? <laughs> yeah. Something exciting. I discovered 10 new cider producers who are doing really cool things with alternative, you know, sugar sources or something. Um, yeah. Or I, I just feel like we're taking pride in the fact that I've tasted a million different grapes from a million different countries and not that I've put my money into making my community a better place by helping, you know, the people who are trying to to do something here. Um I mean, maybe this, you, you've given me time to, to think about what I was trying to say, <laughs> which I, you know, I, clearly I'm not afraid to just speak without knowing what I'm saying, uh, which is, a, is a bit of a flaw, but also hopefully will generate some questions. But I think if, I mean, it's not the only thing I was trying to say, but w one thing that you made me think of is it's not only that people make excuses uh, about some of the things that you said, but it's like, people make excuses about how they grow the wine you know like oh, yeah. i just think in a in a in a world where wine right now is a luxury it isn't a thing that is a calorie preservation device that enables us to make it through uh the cold winter the the long winter especially as those <laughs> winters are getting shorter <laughs> but um it is it is you know and i i hate to call it a luxury because it means so much more than that to me and i it's don't an elective it's, an, it's elective. an elective. Thank you. That's that's good. It's an elective. And considering that there are still people who need our carbon or need some form of energy to be able to pull themselves out of like poverty, poverty and starvation on the planet. Like keep that in mind when you make your decision about what you're going to spray and what where you're going to import your supplies from and your wine from because you're burning carbon that is unnecessary, that's elective. To be able to do that, to, you're polluting the world in an elective way versus people who might need a little bit of an allowance just to be able to eat better and nutritiously, you know, and actually not be malnourished. And I think that's maybe what I was getting at, which is like, have a global perspective on the choices that you make for the carbon that you use and the pollution that you put out there, because, you know, it, it is unavoidable. It's unavoidable too. I mean, it is very well, hard know to know that they're no choices. Trade. Yeah, but know that their choices are not required. So right. one of the problems I have is I we I have friends and I tease them all the time because you know they make five thousand bottles a year, but they're exporting to fifteen countries, and I'm like, yeah, what? I don't understand. Well, we need that, and I think they need it. And some of them are friends, and they'll laugh if they hear this. But 
you know, part of it's ego. Some of it is, you know, making sure that you have a, a viable brand and you have redundancy in case market shift for whatever. And I, I get that. I'm not denying that it's good to have, uh, you know, take and make sure that your market has got opportunity if, if some cer- certain situation falls apart. But, you know, really, do you need to be in 15 countries with 10,000 bottles or 20,000 bottles? Um, you have high demand. I remember the, the, the analogy I tell wineries when I used to do consulting on just on branding and, and sales was, you know, uh, Surly Brewing, and this isn't unique to Surly, but Surly's from Minnesota. And I, I remember they have this beer, Darkness. And when they re- launched Darkness every year, you could only buy it at the, the brewery door. And most people camped out for a couple of days to get it. Imagine a winery, you know, Opus One. <laughs> There's one day you can only buy it at the front door and there'd be a line of people, you know, granted the way it costs, it would probably be people paying other people to sleep outside. But, <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. Yes. Oh, oh, you minions go sleep outside for me. But why, why aren't wineries trying to also reinforce that hyper-local thing? And, yeah. and, you know, saying, I'm going to do uh, five barrels of this great wine, but you have to buy the cellar door. We're going to have a lunch party at the winery. And, um, we're going to have a shuttle from the nearest village where you can catch a trainer. I, you know, I'm just spitballing here, of course. But I think, you know, why does every wine that's produced have to be on every shelf on the planet? Yeah. No, I, um, I to your point, I, I literally, I've been in LA for 20, I don't know, over 25 years, we'll put it that way. And just discovered this year uh, a local producer of probably the best cream sherry in all of the americas so like just and they are making it from old vineyards that grow you know that are probably like pre-prohibition vineyards that grow grapes locally here within you know 50 miles from where i live um it's a solera system that's been going on since like the 60s i think and it is i mean and i've i've had it now and it's just stunningly phenomenal sherry um like I would drink it every day. And that that's a, what made me think of that is it's, that's the way they do it. They release, you know, one bottling a year and they, it's sold out within a week. And I, can I, can I step in as a sherry wine educator? Please. And, and shame you, Adam. It's not real. I mean, that's an English creation. <laughs> So that it would no, no, sherry's <laughs> sherry's a protected denomination of origin. It's not sherry. What do they call it? Okay, sorry. <laughs> it's uh, like port. It's, if you, it's yeah. like my friend Andrew Quaddy in, in California. He doesn't make port, he makes starboard. It is a fortified Solera system uh, exactly. oxidized wine. It could be sherry style. I mean, sherry it could be style. in the style yeah, of sherry. Cream sherry yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. and cream but, um, sherry is actually not even a sherry style it's not even a real thing right <laughs> i thought sort it was of. like yeah i mean this shows how little i know about <laughs> sherry i know there's like five different classifications and it starts with Pino and goes up to like pedro jimenez and and that's about yeah, Oloroso, Amontillado, Pelo Cortado. yeah cream sherry was kind of a, a little side branch of that but yeah i get your thing my mom loves a california sh- cream sherry style cream let me sherry. just say for anybody who hasn't had a cream sherry they're delicious they are um they're just you know like i i mean they're sort of like port in that sense that it's like if, if you want something sweet rather than dry and you want like but but it's port but it's an oxidized version of it made with different grapes so anyway but they're local but these are local these are like actually uh i think they're you know the los angeles grapes that were planted by the um the original uh like the 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 
colonizing mission Spanish mission people originally. Yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. Known as the the mission grape, but I think it's. Uh, but that's it's, but that's my yeah. point. Like even, I mean, supporting local <laughs> businesses is so important. And yeah, and I I like drinking foreign wines, but going back, I found and I've I've been blessed in my twenty plus years of wine industry. I've drank some of the greatest wines in the world and i've drank wines with some very glitterati type individuals in very fancy situations and fancy places and um i i feel very lucky to have had those experiences but i really don't remember a lot of those wines um some of the stories and the the dinners i'll remember because of who was there or stories that were told but you know i said earlier about drinking wines where i know the people behind them that's part of being local. I mean, getting to know the people behind them. There's a there's a little winery up in northern Minnesota that makes somewhat suspect liquids, <laughs> but but they could be they could be charming in their own sense. And it's near my sister's has a cabin up there, and and you go up there and you go and you have a, a glass of whatever they're calling it this week, and yeah. um and it's fun to know the family behind it and their passion for you know making fermented drinks. And I remember more about that than I do about some of these fancy wines that I've had a sip of, you know, because it was so expensive. I could, you know, only get a tiny sip from it um, because it was, you know, basically checking a tick box instead of actually getting to know the person behind it and the stuff. And so I really do think that's something people can do as is why don't we, at least when we pick up the next time we pick up a wine that it could be your KJ Chardonnay, it can be whatever it is. When you pick it up, look at it and just ask yourself, you know, as I think the theme has become, I, I want more questions in this world and less absolutes. Mm. Um, what is the question you have? Who is KJ? Who is Kendall Jackson? You know, two seconds on Wikipedia, you could read the story of the name, the brand, the, na- the man behind the mystery. Um, you could take a second to know something that would give you a human connection to it as opposed to a rote list of facts and figures that we get from the WSET. Um, I think that to me is, you know, people, people come here and they're like, what wine should be buying from Portugal? I'm saying, well, learn a style or learn a region or, or learn, you know, a story and then go find other wines that kind of fit that, that story. If you like it, and maybe you'll discover something new. Um, Speaking so, of uh, stories, this is uh-oh. the story. No, the story that I want, I, I would love you to to tease for folks who, you know, may, despite everything we've said, still want to come taste some Portuguese <laughs> wine <laughs> um, and fly there to do so. Uh, maybe they'll sail at this point. Um, <laughs> ah, but, they can fly. I'll just, yeah. Uh, yeah. we'll make a um, and I, and I really do appreciate that you are a person who who runs a travel agency and isn't afraid to tell people to travel less. So I, 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 I mean, I don't just travel with me, nobody else. Right, right. That's exactly. it. Just one travel. <laughs> There's only one company to travel with. No, that's not that's not quite right. Um, so the the I, I think it's the Talia region. Is it? Oh. I, I don't. Am I? Am I? Alentejo. Alentejo is the Alentejo, region. and I'm thinking of something else that starts with a T within that nope. region. Yep, you're thinking of the talias, which are the large the uh, yes. clay pots. So you ta- that culture, I think, would fascinate some people to know about if they don't know about it already. Can you sort of describe what that's a, a, little, a little bit like? I mean, I'll give you a, a, a broader take on it because when Please. we started writing the book Foot Trodden, um, 
I had at that point, um, let me think. Well, I mean, we'd been doing interviews for a while, but when we finally decided we were going to actually put it in print, I had been writing about Portuguese wine for at least 10 to 15 years and uh, visiting Portugal on press trips and, you know, consulting, working with some wineries one-on-one. And some people might call me a Portuguese wine expert um, at that point. I think I was, I'm always still asking those questions, so I never quite feel like a full expert. But we were on a trip to the Alentejo to visit some wineries and we had heard about the clay pots, but it was a kind of an afterthought. And we were interviewing a winery and they said, oh, you want to see our clay pots? They're out in this outhouse, this separate area. And we went and we looked and we're like, oh, you know, what's this? And started telling us how it was made. I'll explain that in a second. But um, at some point, an offhand comment, one guy said, yeah, you know, behind every door in the village, somebody's got to tell you. And uh, kind of a throwaway comment. And uh, after dinner and um, we're going back and I start talking to Simon. I'm like, you know, it's really amazing to think that every door has a tell you behind it. He's like, Ryan, <laughs> that was just hyperbole. Of course they don't. You know, I'm sure there's some, but not everybody has a tell you behind their door. Well, we go down a year later and this time we know of a producer who's reviving this tradition and we want to learn more about it. Again, I'll explain a bit about it in a second. But um, the first question we have for him as we're meeting him for a local pastry at the cafe in the morning um, is we say, you know, it was weird when we were last down here, somebody mentioned that, you know, there's a talia behind every door. And he's like, yeah. No, I mean, like every door. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean? And his confusion was as great as our confusion at this point. <laughs> and <laughs> we quickly pay for our our, uh, our um, pastries. And we walk out the door and he knocks on the first garage we come to. And there behind the, I don't know what kind of car it was, was Italia underneath some tarps. Um, <laughs> and then we knocked on the next door and there's Italia behind, you know, the coat rack. And then there's <laughs> next door, there's Italia uh, with the lawnmower. And um, we're like, holy crap, there's really Italia behind every effing door. <laughs> and um, and then we got more and more into it. And, you know, this, this, this story is so long. We need a whole couple hours for it. But um, essentially, this culture, unbroken tradition of making wine in these clay pots goes back, I mean, some say to the Romans, some say before the Romans. Um, there's definitely... There's definitely uh, proof the Romans were making wine in clay pots, um, if not earlier. But in the recent years, the the scourge of modern winemaking, if you want to call it that, in the 90s, had taken and told people that these wines weren't serious, weren't important, and weren't going to be wines that anybody on the international stage would ever want to drink. And at the time, it's probably absolutely true. Um, they tend to have a little bit of VA, and they have a very um, fresh, fruit-driven idea of flavor because there's no oak um and in the 90s if it didn't have some oak you know it wasn't real wine so going into the 2000s uh these things were being found and and broken apart and ground up and used in roads to pave roads and things and when i say talias i'm talking about um talias that some of them three four or five hundred years old uh the Mm. oldest one i think we found that's still producing wine or having wine made is from 16, I can get it wrong, around 1670 or so. Um, I have a photo of myself drinking wine directly from it. <laughs> uh, it's just, it's unreal. It's unbelievable to see. But the wine, the way you make wine in Italia, and in fact, before I even mention that, the, <clears throat> it was in the early 2010, a little bit later than that, is actually much later, probably, or 13, 14, that a guy named Professor Alindo, who his family had 
um, his in-laws actually had a house where in the basement they had a, a cellar, a wine cellar with, uh, if I had to guess, 30 big talias, 500 liters or so, um, some probably bigger, some a little smaller. And uh, he said, we've been making wine here ever since the beginning. You know, it's um, always been. But as he saw them being destroyed, um, he got some locals together and he said, you know, we're going to make a com- uh, competition and uh, names and dates don't matter as much as the fact that he was able to, the first year, I think, pull together five, six, seven wines for his competition. And everybody was a bit disappointed and depressed. But today, I think they get around 150 to 200 submissions a year. Now, um, the region of the Alentejo has actually codified a Doc Talia. So you can make Doc Alentejo wines and you can also make Doc, this is the quality wine level Doc. Um, You can also make Doc Talia wines, Mm -hmm. which they had to make some concessions in traditional winemaking for legal reasons, but it's still done in a very traditional way other than the last part of bottling, which has to be done a little more formulaic so that uh, numbers could be recorded. But um, traditionally the wine is basically made in the fall, the harvest happens and the grapes get put into the talia um, with a percentage of stems. Depends on the winery, but you could say 20 to 30% sometimes of stems. And um, these are, if you know anything like the Georgian culture or the Tinajas of uh, Madrid, they're narrow at the bottom, but they're above ground. They sit on the floor of, uh, of the cellar and then they barrel out to maybe two, three feet across at the shoulder. And then they have go back in very quickly to the opening. And during the fermentation, they have to punch them down regularly because if they don't, the pressure builds up so much that they'll literally explode. And, and when I say explode, um, there's a famous Talia seller, one of the biggest ones, which is uh, Jose Souza, um, And he has a, a broken apart Talia there from an explosion. And uh, the shrapnel that came off of that exploding Talia left divots in the, the granite walls it. it's it's not a, not to be taken lightly um oh. it's quite impressive but the wine then goes in and once fermentation is done the top is covered either with a thin layer of olive oil or a board or some plastic or whatever needs to do to cover it and then it's left in there until the day of San Martin which is uh the 11th of November and that's the day that you can open your talia traditionally and drink from it and when I say drink from it, I mean, literally, there's a spigot put into the side of it and the wine filters through all those stems and sediment and leaves. And when you poke the, 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 the spigot in, out shoots a little bit of cloudy water. But within a few minutes of sitting and letting it drip through the spigot, it's completely clear. The wine finds a channel down through the leaves and out through the spigot. And uh, traditionally, you walk around from cellar to cellar and drink from these while telling stories and sharing uh, singing songs with the locals. Um, today, you know, more foreigners are starting to discover this, but fortunately, they aren't grinding up talias anymore. They're uh, they're keeping them and they're yeah. coveting them. They're prizing them, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see how the pressures of modernity play out as more people want to experience this. But <laughs> at the end of our first walk around, where we went and tasted from cellar to cellar, I turned to Simon and I looked at him and I said. What I think just happened, happened. And he looked at me and I've known Simon since he first got into wine, which was in 2011 when he came to our conference in Italy. It was his first wine conference. Um, and he looked at me and I looked at him and we both just kind of like, we couldn't, we, we, we just, our mouth dropped because 
it was the most authentic real wine experience I think I'd had in at that time maybe 18 years 20 years I don't know it was um it was seeing people drinking wine for what wine was which is a social lubricant and uh, a community filament uh, something to bind the community together yeah uh, people wandered the village and went into the doors and then opened up you bring a little bit of sausage with you and uh you'd set it down and they'd have a fire going in the corner and then you walk over and have a cup of wine from dipping down into the where the spigot was dripping into a little bowl and then you tell stories and every so often a few men would break out in song kids running around at your feet and it was like it was as local as you could get because the only way you could drink these wines was to be there and take it from the actual thing itself, <laughs> the, the talia itself. Um, you had to, you couldn't just walk in without getting to know somebody or shaking a hand or trading a smile. And um, it was, it was so like where I would hope we could all get to in a utopian type world where people are worried more about sharing a moment than sharing a stat or a photo on Instagram. <laughs> so. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks so, yeah, for sharing that. that is, uh, I go every year. I go every year. Yeah. Now. It's, it's a religious holiday for me. I, I mean, that sounds like it should be a, one of, uh, <laughs> one of everyone's, anybody who's in wine should be yeah. celebrate. We should find ways to, to re to, to, to do that wherever we are. I think um, that's lovely. And probably yeah, a good doing... place to stop. Do you have any final closing thoughts? <laughs> no, I, I mean, I honestly, I feel honored to 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 be on this show. I thank you so much because you've had some amazing people on the show. Some people um, who I know and friends, but a lot of people who I've learned a lot from. And I really hope the thing that I think this podcast has the potential for is to go beyond wine a bit. Um, I think wine wine's natural function is as a social lubricant. And for me, <clears throat> we need a lot more conversations with wine or cider or <laughs> yeah. prickly pear or whatever it is. We need to look at wine as something that can start conversations and maybe not navel gaze as much, um, mm. but help us have tougher conversations about other things, which in all fairness, a lot of your shows, wine was the least interesting part for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I hope that isn't I mean, offensive. I can, no, no, I can echo that. And I, I can also echo, like, I I feel honored to be on the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, when, you know, when I look at the, the people that I've been fortunate to talk to, yourself included, I really appreciate your, um, I, I think one of the most valuable things that I, you know, live my life by is this, the the asking of questions and your, you valuing that is a, is a big, um, is a big draw. I, and, <laughs> and I hope that came across as much as my I apologize for my rambling at times <laughs> through the, throughout this conversation I think it's your thing yeah it is it, it's my thing I, that's terrible but <laughs> but it's it, okay it, it's good it's good <laughs> it's I, good. I hope that it is it's also a way to generate questions you know I hope me being <laughs> being uh, sort of fearless in looking like an idiot at times uh, it allows other people to ask better questions so and and i appreciate you being somebody who is asking those questions so thank you so much well thank you thanks so much for listening if you enjoyed that great because there's more to come immediately after this i know that sounded like the end of the episode 
but I remembered there were a couple questions I hadn't asked Ryan, and so I hit record and got him to talk about a few more things, but I'm including it as a bonus after this because, you know, maybe this is a, a whole lot to listen to and you can break it up into chapters. Also, if you did enjoy this, if you enjoy this show, if you enjoy this podcast, please support, and you can do that in multiple ways. The coolest way that I'm so grateful that people are doing is through Patreon. You can subscribe on Patreon, and that link will be in the show notes. And I'm so grateful uh, for my new subscribers. There's a few new subscribers. And for those of you who continue to support, it's like incredibly meaningful and helpful to make this podcast possible. Thank you so much. And if you want to just leave a positive review with a word and five stars, a happy word (laughs) or a good word of some kind and and five stars it actually is immensely helpful in uh, getting the algorithm to pay attention to what's happening with this podcast so thanks again and here we go with a little bonus section (laughs) i said (laughs) the prompts were liquid agnostic and we don't need uh we don't need another bavarian coffee shop we need a diversity of options i think i mean i don't know if this relates to any of those directly but it did make me think that um, (laughs) you and i we share a lot of the same ideas and what I really value about talking with you and listening to your show is the fact that it's not yes or no. <clears throat> and in today's world, we have this big problem where we think that if it's bad, it's bad. If it's good, it's good. Uh, mm-hmm. Carbon offsets, bad. Don't work. There was a corruption at one time. No. There's a big spectrum. In my life, I can count on one hand the amount of times I found a subject where there was not a grayscale involved, you know? It's like there's, there's this huge grayscale of options and, and nuances and diversity in any subject. And just like um, I hate more than anything when I hear a politician blame another politician for changing his mind. And I'm like, I don't want to vote for you unless you've changed your mind. And I hope you change it again and again yeah. and again. I hope to next year you come to us and say, I did more research on my policies than I realized we could do them better or different, or maybe that wasn't right. Because the person yeah. who can say I did something wrong and I want to do it better is the person I want to talk to. I don't want to talk to the person who said I've yep. always gotten it right because you're lying. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so when it comes yeah. to carbon offsets and, and and all these other things that we need to do to try to make the world a better place, they're not a perfect solution. And there are frauds and there are good things and there's stuff in between. And um, I think that's the thing that we have as a problem today is everybody's just like, well, one person did it wrong. Therefore, we throw the baby out with the bathwater and move on. And it's like, no, let's talk. (laughs) Let's let's learn from our mistakes. Let's try to find. And one of the reasons I really don't like John Oliver, I used to watch him all the time, is he, 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 to make it palatable for a populace, he, he, creates humor around subjects that I wish some people would just stop and maybe not laugh at. <laughs> yeah. Know? And, yeah. um, and not. Yeah. Mock. It, it doesn't need to be funny. And you don't need to mock the other yeah. side because that doesn't help either. Right. You're mocking somebody right. who yeah. has a strong held belief who we need to convince of a different belief. So pointing your finger and going, nan and a boo boo, you're an idiot. That's not going to change anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yep. 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 <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. I, I the reason I was saying when we got cut off, I was saying I love the fact that a lot of your guests 
are obviously still on a journey of discovery and that you're obviously on one. And, um, yeah, I mean, just to take a personal anecdote, you know, the first tour I gave in the Doro to the tour I give today, they're completely different tours. <laughs> they're, com- right. <laughs> they're completely different information because I've learned so much and I've, I've, I've modified my opinions on what certain things meant. And I've, you know, grown as an individual to interpret things in different ways. And I think, isn't that a good thing as opposed to just being like, well, this is how it is. Right. Yeah. I was going to, I mean, the other prompts that I wanted to talk to, I mean, you, you, you just, I think you made a distinction between being a natural wine shop and a sustainable wine shop at some point. Yeah. That's really important. And it's funny. I, I, I mean, our wine shop here in Porto was created. I honestly, I helped long ago, set of some natural wine events many, many, many years ago. Um, some with Isabel, where I helped her with her event once in a while. Anyway, uh, when I moved to Porto and when we finally decided we need an office, we wanted a small enough space that I could take and um, uh, do some tastings for our clients. And we found a big, a big office. And in that office, there was enough room to put a little wine shop. And I was just going to put regular wines in the shop. But I realized that it didn't make sense um, since all my friends had wine shops in Porto and they were all the same wines. So I said, well, nobody's covering natural wine. I'll just do that. And um, not because I had anything against it or for it. It was more like to provide a diversity to the customers in the neighborhood, as it were. And um, then I went down the rabbit hole of what that meant and what organic wine meant and natural wine, whatever that is. And... um, Eventually, we were, I think, the first wine shop on the Raisin app. I don't know if you know the Raisin app, but um, it's a re- really good app for finding natural shops and or bars in any city in the world. Um, oh, yeah, nice. it's a great app and um, by some French guys. And uh, it, we were the first one in Porto, so then we started to get more people coming here. And I started to then have to decide what is natural because they make you prove that your wines are natural, which is a bit difficult in many ways to do um yeah <laughs> they did it largely by sulfur um whereas i do it more based yeah. on farming but um right what it came down to is i have a lot of people in my shop who don't qualify under their term natural and probably other people's but um i just realized you know i want a shop full of wines that mimicked number one a policy of a restaurant up here in the doro that i respect they have a no asshole policy for their wine shop. Um, so if you, you know, wine tastes better when somebody's nice. And um, that's, that was their idea. So they have the, yeah. um, that policy. And I said, well, that's my first policy. I want wines in my shop from people who I actually like and respect. And the second part of that was then I want those people to be taking care of the environment. And so we say low intervention slash sustainable wine shop. And what that meant to me, and when people come in, um, a couple of things happen. Um, one, people will come and say, so all your net wines are natural. And I have to ask them what their definition of natural is, to which they say, well, natural, of course. And then you find out, you know, some people's definitions based on sulfur, some's based on farming, some's based on fancy labels <laughs> or dirty, <laughs> unfiltered wines. Um, kind of depends on the person. Um, but then... I turn to him, I say, well, you know, I have what you're looking for, but I label my wine sustainable um, because I want the full circle of who they are and what they do to be um, 
to be thought of. So I want them to pay their workers well. I want them to um, I want them to take and contribute to the environment. Um, I want or make, take care of the environment. I want them to make sure that they um, you know do as little as possible in the winemaking. My goal is to make sure that instead of just looking at one little pie slice of that equation, they're going to actually be investing in the community and their workers and in the wine. And yeah. um, people look at me and they're like, well, that sounds good. And I'm like, so I don't know if that's natural, <laughs> but I, I do take wines off my shelf occasionally who I feel like aren't participating and making that circle whole. Um, that does happen. Um, <laughs> But yeah. I much rather hear that you've taken and invested the money you make in building a, a building in your neighborhood that's needed or uh, helping somebody to, um, you know, recover some of their vines because their their husband died and you're going to help the widow, you know, make a little bit of extra cash and uh, make the world a little bit better place, whatever that small thing is. Um, and if you use a little bit of sulfur, so be it. I don't really care. <laughs> Yeah, I, want, I just want you to don't look at it as one thing. Don't take wine out of context and put it in a its own bottle on the shelf. You know, keep wine as part <laughs> of part of life. You know, it's a social lubricant. Is this how we? Is this how we got into the Bavarian coffee shop? Or were we talking about like maybe what the appeal of natural wine was? It's not so much that the world needed you know a bazillion natural wine bars. It's just that we needed a freaking other choice besides, you know, like the same vinifera grapes planted all over the world. Was that how we got into that? I, and that was the story you told or, or what was the diversity aspect that we, that inspired the Bavarian coffee shop? Well, I story? mean, it's a, diversity is such a, it's such a, it's such a great thing. I mean, as we talked in, about many times now, um, especially with, um, with, um, sustainability people isolate one aspect and make that the whole story um the Bavarian coffee shop is just you know here in, in plenty places people will look around and see oh they put up a uh, um a coffee shop and they decorate a certain way and now they're the busiest shop on the street and so everybody around them all of a sudden decorates their coffee shops exactly the same instead of learning the lesson that not that we need Bavarian coffee shops but that we need something different from what's already there and so you need to go out and find something different as well. And I think that metaphor, I don't know how we got to it, but at least five or six different topics we've spoken about all benefit from that same logic and wine being one of them. Yep. Why does wine have to be from a grape? Why does it have to be red, white, and dry? Why does it have to be in a bottle? Why does it have to be shipped around the world? Why can't we see wine as something that you can go get and um, locally, um, I, I, I love the idea that a winery releases their wines only from the cellar door. Um, yeah. Why not? There's, <laughs> yeah. in my opinion, sure, you can say we need a diversity of markets so that are, we're sustainable. But do you really need your wine in Japan, China, Denmark, Germany, Sweden, the U.S.? You know, do you need it in all those places? Yeah. We have a lot of wine yeah. and in truth, yeah. as much as people really hate to hear this and I don't care what anyone says, and I'm sure a lot of people will disagree with me because they do. Wine isn't that different. There's, it, it's not that often you run into a wine that's completely different from another wine. Like 
yeah. stands by itself on a pedestal. That yeah. so rarely happens. But I do have wines that when I drink them, they have that experience. And the reason those wines, I have the experience with those wines is a little bit to do with the juice. The juice has to be good, but it has to do with the label. It has to do with the person who made it. It has to do with the place I bought it or the person I bought it from. All of those things make a wine stand on its own and be different than everything else. It's not the liquid. I mean, and not to mention the context in which you drink it, exactly. right? Like, you know, if, like the, those memorable bottles oftentimes are not even about the flavor or experience of the wine itself, but, you know, where you were, how you, you know, <laughs> who you were with, how, what was happening, that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I, have, I haven't think about like when my, my favorite wine drinking memories, the wine was literally the, you know, 10th thing on the list of what made it amazing. Yeah. You know, if, if the 10th, you know, um, but that's, that's exactly, yeah. that's exactly the, the thing we, when we did our big conference, it went to a different country every year in 2000, oh, what year was it? 14, I think we were in um, Switzerland in Montreux, Switzerland. And every year we had a theme and that year, the theme was wine in context. And it was discussing this whole idea that the juice is the only part of the conversation we talk about when we talk about wine, when wine has so many other contexts that contribute mm. to its value. Yeah. Um, I will buy a wine that's organic or that I know the person is trying to be organic or is trying yeah. to change their behavior. I will support that person and that yeah. wine before another wine um, just because I want right. to be yeah, part too. of the solution. Um, and Yeah, I say like, oh, okay, sorry. Oh, it, no, it's just I, the, that conference was really interesting because there was people in the audience who just couldn't grasp the idea that um, we didn't want to talk about the wine. <laughs> that we wanted yeah, to talk about yeah. everything around it. <laughs> well, well, it's sort of like, I I, I, I go, you know, I, I come from writing and, and storytelling traditions. <laughs> and uh, the way I put it is like wine may be the protagonist of our story, but it's not what the story is about. You know, just like you wouldn't say that, you know, private ryan was what saving private ryan is about you know what yeah. i mean like uh you know what i mean or or whatever you know like whoever the protagonist of the story is they're really just a vessel for the themes of the story for the you know for the the you know the 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 things that you explore the the deeper meaning yeah. of why that story is being told in the first place and and i see wine that way too where it's like it, yeah it's the protagonist it gets all the attention but that's not what the story is about no i mean yeah, wine is a social lubricant. You know, it was a calorie preservation device. Yeah. Today has become a social lubricant. And we talk about it so much, yet we have other social lubricants we don't talk about as much and we just enjoy the moment. Um, you know, yeah. so yeah. wine for me, I, I love I love geeking out about wine, but that's, that's a specific time and place with a specific type yeah. of person. And that's a certain part of my mind, but I also enjoy just walking into a house and had somebody handing me a glass of wine and not even yeah. telling me what it is, you know, that, right. Oh, yeah. you want some wine? Yeah. Here's some wine. <laughs> okay. Now I have wine. Right. <laughs> now, now, now we have conversation <laughs> and now we have friendship. Right. All of these things work well together. Right. Um, yeah. And that's, I, again, people, I wrote this article. I don't know if I ever sent it to you called on wine and tragedy. Um, which was all about this, the fact that oh, yeah. I, I'll send it to you. Um, 
it's it's basically about the fact that in the wine industry, we're always looking for a new app, a new tool, a new method to help consumers discover new wines. And I'm like, look at the consumer doesn't need any help discovering new wines. It has too much wine. What the producer needs is a way to find new consumers. The consumer's fine. Right. Quit building tools for the consumer. <laughs> because yeah. the consumer yeah. doesn't have a problem finding wine. <laughs> the only thing we've done as yeah. an industry is tried to teach the consumer that they might choose the wrong wine. And I've never met a wrong right. wine in my life. Um, you know, I've met wines I didn't like, but that didn't mean it was wrong. This is great. Yeah, no, it's true. I, I mean, I wrote an article called The Impenetrable Wall of Wine. And it, and it is that experience of being a consumer and walking into like a grocery store or liquor store to buy a bottle of wine. And it's literally just like three shelves of, of, a, of a foreign language, like stacked side by side as long as an entire row. And you, you have like, how do you make a choice out of that? Like everything is literally identical. If you don't know anything, I mean, like we walk in with a certain level of knowledge that we take for granted that now allows us to sort of parse that. But it's sort of like telling somebody who grew up in an urban center and dropping them in the middle of the woods and being like, okay, now feed yourself with this forest. Like there, there very well may be like a bazillion edible, delicious things that they could live happily for the rest of their life in that forest, but they'd have no clue how to pick them out, you know? And it's like taking somebody, an unknown, you know, like a person who doesn't have even, you know, like, like I, I mean, if I walked into, if you just eliminate your, you know, the, the, the knowledge that you take for granted and you walk into a, a wine aisle, like you'll just want to run screaming from that aisle. Well, <laughs> you know I, I mean, mean I do like, it. When I go, it's so intimidating. When I go home to the States, so I'm so confused. I mean, I literally shop by label and I'm supposed to be one of the top wine experts um, at least for a certain category of wine. Um, I've been writing about wine for many years. I've sold wine for many years, and I still buy wine by label. Um, I see a kick-ass label. I'll pick it up and take it home and see what's what's in there. Um, <laughs> I, I tell my customers, they always say, well, yeah. I know nothing about wine, so I shop by label. And I say, well, I know a lot about wine. I still shop by label. Um, <laughs> so I don't know which one of us is wrong, but I, it's working for both of us. <laughs> So, you know, it, it's it's like we've taught people that wine is mushrooms and that the, every every, you know, one in 10 isn't going to kill you. Um, <laughs> so people are like right. just as paranoid, like I can't I, if I take this yeah. wine home, I might not enjoy it. It's like, well, you're right, but you can always come back and try a different one tomorrow. Um, <laughs> right. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> Yeah, it's, 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 and on top of that, you know, don't worry about how you consume it. I this whole idea, you know, Tim Hanai, the MW, um, he's fought against the idea of food and wine pairing for so long, and I'm part of that that fight, that battle. Because when I drink wine at a meal, it, it, I I won't say that I have never had a great food and wine pairing. That's true, and that's kind of my cerebral side, my geeky ex-chef side of my head where I'm like, okay, these flavors are fun together. But if I sit down with a group of 10 friends, I could give a shit what color the wine is on the table. You know, we're okay. there to talk, have a laugh, make fun of each other, eat some ribs or whatever we're cooking and, and have a good time. And sure, with my wine geek friends, we're, we're popping big names and fun bottles and we're doing that for ourselves. But when I am with my non-wine geek friends, you know, I'm popping whatever is around whatever boxes on the shelf. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that is one of the biggest wastes of time in wine is like how much energy and writing is spent on pairing. 
And it's just like, I mean, I think the only rule you have to go with is like, do you, do you enjoy eating it? Do you enjoy drinking it? Great. Done. Come on. I mean, here, when I moved to Europe, Uh, when I moved to Europe, herring done. Exactly. I I moved to Europe and I wrote something long ago. I forget where, but basically I had a wine shop in Minnesota and customers would come in and grab a bottle of wine off the shelf and walk up to me and go, so I have this wine, you know, I was thinking, how long should I keep it? And, you know, when I do open it, so what foods would you put with it? And, you know, how long should I let it breathe? And when I moved to Europe, I was, that was my mentality. That was how wine is. And I moved to Europe. And right. the first place I go, we sit down and there's food on the table. And we start eating and somebody says in the middle of it, hey, where's the wine? And a Connecticut, right. a, a pitcher of wine shows up, and I don't know what color it was. And neither did they. They poured a glass, and they kept eating, and we kept talking. And you know, because wine is food, as I said in Portugal, it's, yeah. it's taxed as food, and wine is a cultural element, it's a social lubricant. It gets the. It's funny because I do tastings here at the lab or shop, and uh, I get couples in here who are so shy because they're like, "Oh, this, I'll have to show you the shop." get you on chat and show you yeah um but it's it's intimidating we have a lot of interesting things on the wall and they sit down and they're quiet and you know pouring small tastings it only takes about two or three tastings and all of a sudden i'm learning about their family and i'm learning about life and we're telling stories and you know my tastings are always this they're called omakas wine tastings you sit down at my table i interview you for about 10 minutes and then i open things and that can sometimes be wine the beer could be make some tea, have a coffee, whatever it is. We we end up having a conversation, and sometimes we go deep into you know varietals and, and soil types, and other times we talk about the weather in the Cayman Islands. You know, whatever it is. Um, my goal is by the end of that tasting for you to feel comfortable around new flavors and new ideas. Yeah, oh, I love that. It's a lot of fun. I love doing it. Omakase wine. T- I'm, I think I'm going to steal that omakase wine tasting. That's good. Um, yeah, I mean, I yeah. never know what I'm going to open like, until you sit down. And sometimes we open up. For... How do you make that decision? Do you is it like do you ask questions that would lead you to discover what you think somebody would like, or what? Like, how do you? Yeah, what, does the interview portion of that experience give you information, or does it just warm up the the you know, you warm you both up to each other. I mean, within 30 seconds, I know whether or not we're going to be talking about wine. I mean, a lot of people want a wine tasting because they're told they need a wine tasting. They don't, they, oh, you're in Portugal. Oh, you have to do a wine tasting. Oh, okay. I'll go check that box. And most people like drinking wine, but I don't know a lot of people that like talking about wine. I mean, outside my professional circle, which is quite big, but I'm talking in the general scope of things. People, oh, tell me a little bit about this wine means... Tell me if we're going to drink it, and let's talk about the weather. Um, that's a lot of my guests, right? and that's fine. So if I find out we're going to be talking about other things, I want to know your likes, your interests. I'll ask a few questions about what you do and don't eat, so I can immediately tell, are you adventurous? Are you really conservative? And I'm also looking to see how much I can push you outside your limits. So I have a set of black glassware here. And if you're really one of those people that says, I only drink red wine, you know, I need to know whether or not I can turn to you and say, what flavor's red? And guess what color this wine is? Um, <laughs> which I love to do with people. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I, I, I do it because I think a lot of people have always just been walked into places, had somebody say, here, taste this. This is made here by this person. 
you know, forget, forget, forget. Oh, we did a nice tasting at some place. I forget the name, but we tasted three wines and it was good. As opposed to, hey, I'm Ryan. I got a cool history. You want to hear about it? Or you want to talk about yourself? I've had people come to my wine tasting table and just tell me their life story as we open wines. And uh, they're like, what's this? I'm like, oh, this is a Ryan from nearby here. It's a little different than the last one. Yeah, and you know, my cousin the other day, and they'll take off and start talking about yeah. something. And every time universally, they they leave the shop, they say, that was the most fun wine tasting I've had. And sometimes it's about the wine. Sometimes it's about the moment. Sometimes it's about history of Portugal or my history or just letting them vent. And I think that's something that um, I obviously, this is something that any bartender knows. <laughs> if you want a nice tip, <laughs> you do what the guest needs. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. So. Well, um, okay, I won't keep I won't keep plugging you for this stuff because I, I also have to make make this an editable <laughs> experience for myself. Sponsor for this episode is Catavino Tours. Catavino Tours provides luxury travel, wine, and food tours in Portugal and Spain, and they are guided by a desire to reduce the ecological impact that travel can have. Bye reducing waste, encouraging fewer and more meaningful trips, and by using well-vetted carbon offsets. They are currently booking at catavinotours.com slash OWP for Organic Wine Podcast for a fall sustainable and natural wine harvest tour. If you're considering a wine tour in Portugal and Spain and want to have that experience be more meaningful and conducted by a company who is thoughtful about their ecological impact, Check out Catavino Tours by going to catavinotours.com slash O-W-P. That's C-A-T-A-V-I-N-O tours.com slash O-W-P for Organic Wine Podcast. And your tour will not only benefit you, but this podcast as well. I'll list that link in the show notes. Thank you for being thoughtful about your travel.